Let's, um, as we jump into Acts chapter 1, for those who don't know, we are doing a teaching series through the book of Acts. And I'm teaching from a Messianic Jewish perspective. You know, the, the New Testament is a very Jewish book written to Jews, written by Jews in many situations. Um, with, with the Old Testament, or what we call the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, with that on the forefront of their minds. These men, these writers of the New Testament and the characters in the New Testament are very familiar with the Jewish faith, very familiar with the land of Israel, with what, what went on in the temple worship system itself. So I'm trying to teach from that perspective for you and give you some, you know, there's lots and lots of teachings out there in the book of Acts you can find on YouTube, but very few of them actually, actually approach it from the vantage point that we're approaching it in this series. I did an intro last week on on the book of Acts and kind of went through an overview on the book of Acts. And today we're actually going to finally open the book of Acts and read chapter one. But this is an overview for those who weren't here last week or just to kind of remind you. The book of Acts is comprised of 28 chapters. It's written in the Greek language in the early 60s. And remember, there's two key events that Luke leaves off. That's how we help date it. It's written by a man named Luke who was a traveling companion to Paul. He was a doctor and historian. He was probably a non-Jew, probably a Gentile. It primarily focuses on two apostles. Do you guys remember the two apostles in the book of Acts? Peter and Paul. Yeah. It has 80 geographical references. A hundred people are mentioned by name in the book of Acts. There's several precise political titles like consul, proconsul, and tetrarch. It, it, it has 24 speeches recorded in it. And, and then it ends abruptly. And you'll notice that as we get to the end. It just ends. It doesn't include the destruction of the temple in 70 it doesn't include the death of Paul. It just ends abruptly. Luke is focused on these main themes right here in the book of Acts. You'll see this movement, this Yeshua movement, we could call it, this messianic movement of Jews who believe in Yeshua of Nazareth to be their Messiah. How did it spread so quickly? What are the major tenets of its beliefs? Who are the key figures and leaders of this movement? And what role are non-Jews going to play in this movement? Okay, that's the book of Acts, in a nutshell, is trying to answer those questions right there. You know, Acts is a story. It's a narrative. It's historical narrative. It's a history book. It's not necessarily theology, although there are some theological determinations made in the book of Acts. It is a history book. And I told you guys, I want to read this book. I want to study this book from the vantage point of the man that was receiving this book. His name was Theophilus. I want to read it like he read it, to the best of our ability. Now, an interesting thing happens, you know, there's psychologists who uh, say, and I don't agree by any stretch of the imagination, all in secular psychology, but there's one concept I do think is very fascinating within secular psychology, and that is what we call narrative identity. So, in other words, they say this, that a human being, you know, like Gabe Rutledge, is most fulfilled and happy and healthy, mentally speaking, when I can look back at my life and I can see a very fluid, seamless story of my life. That it has a beginning, has a middle part, has maybe a proposed ending that hasn't happened yet, but I have that kind of played out in my mind. That I'm healthy when I can have, have that, that seamless narrative. And that's, you know, I have these relationships that I've had throughout my life. I have parents, I have family, I have church friends, and all, you know, so on and so forth. And that's pretty seamless. It's a narrative of my life. And then there's also, there's relational identity narratives, then there's geographical narratives. So in other words, how many of you grew up in the Dothan area? 
You're from Houston County, from the, okay, a few of you. And, and you're still here. And so like ge geographically speaking, you're still in the same place. Now, unfortunately, this thing happens in our culture, in our society where it says, oh, you're still here, you know, you're supposed to leave or something like that. You're supposed to go off and, and you know, move somewhere, wherever that is, I don't know. But I think that that's wrong. I think that if you stay in the same place for three, four, five generations, as long as it's a good, healthy place, I think that that's good for a human being to have that geographical narrative, that seamless narrative. So you're, you're still around your grandparents and your great-grandparents, and you know, you're gonna be there for all those life-changing moments of birth and death and marriage and, and all, you, know, you name it. That's good and that's healthy for a human to kind of go through that narrative. So we've got relational identity narrative where we have like relationships with humans and our family and ourselves and we see the narrative of our life and that's good and that's healthy. And then we've got geographical narrative. Now, this thing happens, however, where there's these, there's these uh, changes, these blips, where we go through intense relational um, upset. An instance of that might be, and some of you have had to walk through this, is divorce. When you experience divorce, the narrative of your life suddenly has to change. And there's like, there's this time, and now there's like this time, right? or incarceration. There was this time I was incarcerated and that put a pause button on the narrative of my life. And then I get out and I'm like, okay, now I gotta figure out how do I continue that narrative of my life and what does it look like post that event? Then there might be like the death of a loved one, right? And what does it look like now? I didn't expect them to die that way or to die then. There was a disruption in my, my narrative of my story or my marriage or whatever, right? And then there's geographical disruption where you're suddenly you're uprooted and you have to move. And some of you grew up in the military, um, you experienced this. Many of you say, well, I was an army brat or I was a Navy brat, so my family moved a lot. So I can't really say I'm from here. Do you know that's actually a degree unhealthy? It's good for you to be able to say, I grew up here. These are my roots. These are who I identify with. That's actually really good and healthy. Now, I love traveling, don't get me wrong, I love seeing the world. But for children to kind of be in the same place and be around the same people for multiple generations, it's really healthy. And some of you, when you say that, I've heard you say that, you're like, well, we kind of bounced around a lot. You say it in a kind of a negative way, because you know, I did, not, I did not like that. We moved every two years. That was unenjoyable to me to have to make new friends every time, right? But there's, so the book of Acts has this narrative in there where there's this, like this relational narrative and then there's a geographical narrative. And the book of Acts is interesting because it, it, it explores this movement, this group of people called the way, called the sect of the Nazarenes, called the Christians. They are this pivotal central movement in the book of Acts, but they experience this intense, harsh persecution and relational upset as a group of people. Then they experience the same thing geographically when they're persecuted out of Jerusalem then the Romans come in and sack Jerusalem and they level, you know, populations, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are killed by the Roman army in the, in the year 70 and they have to flee. That's geographical upset. So for us here, like I said, 6,000 plus miles away from this land where most of this stuff takes place, we have to figure out as we read the book of Acts, how do I connect back relationally to these people? How do I connect back geographically to these people? and relate to them. Because I'm not in the land, I've never met anyone in this book. How do I do that? How do I connect with that? And that's the hurdle we kind of have to overcome. 
He's looking at the story that way, as repairing that, those, those disruptions. So I asked you guys to do some homework uh, last week. How many of you read Acts chapter 1 and 2? Several of you. Good, good. And then I, I asked you this question. What is a Sabbath day's walk? Did anybody find the answer? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. What is it? Stay within the city, you know. Yeah. There's no limit within the city. Outside the city, it's two it's thousand cubits. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Which is about a kilometer. Which we're going to talk a lot about today. I, I asked you in the book of Acts, what are the three names of the movement of Yeshua followers? Did anybody get all three? Did anybody get one? The way. The way. What's another one? Yeah, Michael. The Nazarenes. The Nazarenes. Good. Did anybody get the third one? I just said it a minute ago. Notzrim is Nazarene. They're, they're the same thing. The Christians, okay? We have the way, the Nazarenes, or the Notzrim, and the Christians. Wasn't Christian kind of a negative? Yes, yep. The, the term Christian was kind of a slander at first. Um, but yeah, those three are used. Which one do you think is used the most to describe our movement? Yeah, uh, I counted the way. I got the way. Is that what you guys got? I got the way as well. Yeah, the way. Which of those names? Okay, we covered that. What method is used to select the twelfth disciple? Did you guys get that? Yeah, yeah Marvin. They, yeah, they prayed to God to pick the right disciple. They picked kind of a lot, and they ended up picking Matthias. Exactly. Yeah, is that what you're going to say, Brian? They drew lots. They prayed to God. And they drew lots. Yeah, he stole your answer. Yeah, you were definitely going to say that, right? So what I'm going to do today is let's look at let's turn to Acts chapter one. Remember, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Right? Acts chapter one. Are you there? Let's read, and I'm going to do what we call expository teaching, where I'm going to read a verse or two or three, and then I'm going to give a comment and talk about what we just read. So remember, Luke part, wrote the book of Luke, that's part one, and then part two is the book of Acts. And he says, Dear Theophilus, which means friend of God, right? In the first book, I wrote about everything Yeshua set out to do and to teach, until the day when, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to the emissaries whom he had chosen, he was taken up into heaven. Now, pause. This term, Holy Spirit, or in Hebrew, we say Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness. It's used 39 times in this book. That's significant. That is almost half of all the occurrences of the New Testament right here in this book. So the book of Acts, in, in Luke specifically, is obsessed with recording how the Holy Spirit interacts with and motivates the followers of Yeshua and, and, and almost makes them do certain things and say certain things. We're going to see that. So we're in verse 3. After his death, he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive during a period of 40 days. Now, how long was Moses on Mount Sinai? 40 days, yeah. They saw him and they spoke with them about, and he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Verse four, at one of these gatherings, he instructed them not to leave Yerushalayim, but to go and wait for what the father had promised, which you heard about from me. For Yochanan, John, he immersed people in water, but in a few days, you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's a second occurrence in this book. So let's pause here. What do you think these, these men, these disciples, and, and possibly females, what do you think they envisioned when he said to them, in a few days you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit? Now, you, many of you grew up in church, so you kind of understand that a little bit. But pretend that you're just religious Jews standing there on the Mount of Olives, and he says you're going to be in a few days immersed in the Holy Spirit. What do you think their mind shot back to? 
Baptism, perhaps. Perhaps. Mount Sinai, perhaps, yeah. If you look with me at Numbers 11, I have it up there. Numbers 11. Numbers, which is in back in the Torah. Numbers 11. Let's see what I think they, they would have pictured in their minds of being immersed in the Holy Spirit. Numbers 11. You guys there? So Moses is dealing with all these people's problems and all their baggage. And, and then he appoints these 70 elders who are going to help. And he's going to delegate leadership to them and help, help Moses kind of come to conclusions on these, these issues. And he says, um, the Lord said to Moses in verse 16, Numbers eleven sixteen, 16, bring me 70 of the leaders of Israel, people you recognize as the leaders of the people and officers of theirs. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the ruach, some of the spirit, which rests on you, and I will put it on them. Then they will carry the burden of the people along with you so that they won't carry it yourself. Tell the people to consecrate yourself for tomorrow and uh, for tomorrow you will eat meat. So let's go just skip down to verse 26. So there were two men who stayed in the camp. One was named Eldad and the other was Medad. Can we, can we uh, back up to verse 25? I need to read that. The Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 leaders. When the spirit, when the Ruach came to rest on them, they prophesied. Now the word there in Hebrew for prophesy is nava. Can you guys say nava? Nava. Yeah, but they did not afterwards. There, uh, there were two men who stayed in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Ruach came to rest on them as well. Then they were among those listed to go out of the tent, but they hadn't, hadn't done so. And they did the same thing. They gave a nava in the camp. So what is this nava? Because here it seems to me like they're being immersed in the Holy Spirit. Does it not to you? Sometimes we think that the immersion of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and prophesying because of the Holy Spirit is like a New Testament thing. But apparently it's not. See what I'm saying? Well, the Hebrew word nava means to bubble up. To cause to bubble up. You know, have you ever boiled something before and you forget about it and then you look back and it's bubbling up out? It, it can't be contained. You have to turn the heat down, right? That's what these guys in the book of Numbers are doing. They're bubbling up out of the utterance of the Holy Spirit. They're prophesying. They can't contain it. And then we see in Acts 1, Yeshua says, hey, you, my emissaries, my disciples, you're going to experience something like the men in the 70 leaders of Israel experienced back in Numbers 11. You can't contain it. It's going to bubble up out of you. I see a question. Well, in the Tanakh, it seems like whenever it mentions the Holy Spirit coming upon people, it's more like a physical, like here, he took part of the Spirit from Moses and yeah. put it on them. Yeah. Whereas in Acts, it's a different thing. It's yeah. a new thing. It's like a, an indwelling, mm -hmm. ongoing, yeah. not a put it on and then it goes off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, notice in Numbers 11 where it says that they prophesied and then they didn't. Yes. Where in Acts we're going to see that that prophetic utterance through the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to continue. We're going to see that later. That's a very good observation. Thank you. So verse 6. When they were together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Got to remember the Romans are occupying Israel, right? 
And this would be a really good time for him to say, ah, guys, I'm sorry. I'm actually going with a plan B called this new entity called the church. And Israel will never have self-rule anymore. God is done with Israel for now. And now he's starting this new thing called the church. There's the church age. There's Israel. There's the church age. Be a really good opportunity for him to kind of clarify that in their minds, right? Apparently they don't understand that. But instead, what did he say? You don't need to know the dates or the times the father has kept under his own authority. But you will receive power from this Ruach HaKodesh, this Holy Spirit, when it comes upon you. And you will be my martyrs in the Greek. It says martyrs there. Both in Yerushalayim and in all Yehudah and Shamron or Samaria. Indeed to the eschatal, to the remotest parts of the earth. Eschatal just means that the most, the most, the most uh, in, in parts, the most re remotest parts. Verse 9. After this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were staring at this, into the sky after him, suddenly they saw two men dressed in white standing next to them. The men said, you Galileans, why are you standing staring into space? This Yeshua who was taken away from you into heaven will come back to you just the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this is... This is um, this is harking on Daniel chapter 7. If you go look at Daniel chapter 7, somewhere in the middle of Daniel chapter, we're not going to read it today, but if you look at Daniel chapter 7, it talks all about the enthronement of the, the Son of Man. You look at Daniel 7 and midway through, you'll see it describes Yeshua's ascension almost to the T. And so their minds, as they're sitting there watching that, you've got to believe they're thinking, whoa, Daniel 7 is happening before our eyes. This is amazing. The enthronement of the Son of Man, he's being enthroned in the clouds of heaven. So verse 12, they returned the Shabbat walks distance from the Mount of Olives to Yerushalayim. What is the Shabbat walks distance? You ever puzzled over that before when you read Acts 1? You're like, wait, Shabbat walks distance? Like, does that mean I take a Shabbat on a walk? Or is there, like, what is that? Well, let's, let's do a quick geography lesson here, review. So here we have the temple. Can somebody hit the lights for the projector um, or for the front lights? Lily, would you hit the light switch? But don't hit the light switch that says projector. Just hit the one that says front lights. No pressure. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So thank you so much, Lily. So this is the temple. This is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the city of Jerusalem. This is the Valley of Kidron. This is the Mount of Olives over here. Okay. So they're over here watching this ascension, watching the enthronement of Daniel 7 take place. Then they're like, well, what do we do now? Well, he said to go back to Jerusalem and wait there. So let's go back to Jerusalem and wait. Pause. When is this happening? What time of year is all this happening? Remember, he died in Passover. He's ascending how many days later? 40 days later. What holiday is next on the Torah calendar? Shavuot, or what do we call it in English? Pentecost. All right, it's coming up. We're just maybe eight to 10 days away from it. Not even that. So we're going to go back to Jerusalem and we're going to wait. Something might happen eight to ten days from now in the city on that holy day. And we'll see that come. So they go back to the city. They go back a Shabbat walks distance to the city. So is this just, um, what is the Shabbat walks distance? Is that the rabbis making things difficult for us, right? They like to do that sometimes. Well, no, it's not. It's from the Torah. Exodus 16, 29. Look, God has given you the Shabbat. 
This is why he is providing bread for two days on the sixth day. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. Huh. Jeremiah 17. This is what the Lord says. Take key for yourselves. Do not carry a load or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You must not carry a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath day, but you must keep the Sabbath day holy, just as I commanded your forefathers. So you're looking at this command. Let's say you're ancient Israelite, right? You're looking at these two commandments, not to carry a load, not to leave your place on Shabbat. How do you translate it? How do you interpret it? Hmm. Anything? Well, you all are here today. You've left your home, right? Yeah. You say that, that that's all broken down for you in the oral. Yes, yeah, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, but it's, it's confusing, right? I mean, like, if I, I need someone to help me interpret this. Otherwise, it seems to me like I needed to stay in my house all day on the Shabbat. But then you've got, like, Hebrews 10, which says, do not forsake the assembling together. I'm like, oh, man, I can't. What do I do? You well, live really close by. You live really close by, yeah. So based on this, wouldn't a Sabbath day's walk actually be zero? Like if you really take this literally, you can't leave your house. So you can't walk anywhere unless it's inside your house, right? Well, the rabbis actually made it easier for us. <laughs> they actually interpreted this commandment for us. And, and here's what they said, um, that based on Joshua chapter three, verse four, based on this, that the Israelites were to keep a distance of about 2000 cubits between you and the ark. Based on that, there's something important about 2,000 cubits, which a cubit is from your fingertip to your elbow, okay? About a kilometer. About a, about a kilometer, yeah. Um, they said this, that if you're, I'm gonna summarize this, you don't need to read it. Basically, if you're inside of a city, you can, go as, you can walk as long as you want inside the city gates, all right? That's staying in your place. In other words, the city is the place. But if you wanna go outside the city, you're limited to a thousand cubits out, a thousand cubits back. All right? And the, the rabbis were like, okay, guys, I think if we collectively obey it that way, I think we'll be good. Because there is a, there is a commandment, don't leave your place, right? So that's how the, the ancient rabbis, and this was around during the first century for sure, that they would understand we have 2,000 cubits to walk if we're outside of a city, okay? And I just summarized that right there. There's another verse there. We're gonna skip that real quick. But this is an ancient... Uh, an ancient Shabbat marker, a distance marker that was found in the city of Usha, which is in the Western Galilee. It's interesting because it's actually written in Greek. So what they would do is they'd go out on the outskirts of the city, they would measure from the city gate to a thousand cubits out, and they would mark something on stone. So that observant Jews in the first century, they knew, okay, oh, no, we're coming really close to the tehum, the boundary. We have to turn around. We don't want to break Shabbat. We want to keep Shabbat holy. Let's turn around and go back to the city now. Or let's have a picnic out here and then we'll go back or something. So that was the understanding all over Israel. In modern times, you have these signs in Israel. And if you go to Orthodox communities like Crown Heights, New York, for instance, or Miami or something like this, you would see these kinds of signs. Here's one in, in Israel. This is called an Aruv. An Aruv is like a, like a, like a division. Um, it reads, end of approved area. So if you're living in a Jewish neighborhood in Israel... And it's Shabbat, and you leave your city, you don't want to go past that sign. If you're observant, if you want to keep Shabbat, if you don't want to keep that commandment to not leave your place on Shabbat. Um, this is discussed lengthy. There's a lengthy discussion in Tractate Iruvim of the Oral Torah of the Talmud. You can look at online if you'd like.
But this is, this is going around in the minds of Jews at the time, and Jews to this day especially. But number one, why does Luke include this? Was Theophilus aware of this? Did Theophilus know about a Sabbath day's walk? Why does Luke include it? It yeah. depends on who you say Theophilus is. Yeah, it depends. Yeah, it could be all of us as friends of God, or it could be one person in particular. It's interesting because Luke starts with Theophilus, and so does Acts. Yep. And as far as I know, that's the, the only two books of the Bible that have the person twice. Yeah. The same person. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point, yeah. Do you think Theophilus knew about a Sabbath day's walk? Well, was he familiar with that? Priest, if he was high priest. Perhaps some people speculate that maybe he was a high priest at the time or a priest. Were the disciples respecting of this restriction? It seems like they are to me. It seems like they're respecting this. Okay, we can't go past. Let's go back the Sabbath day's walk. I don't know. Do you, um, do you think maybe this is why Yeshua tells us in Matthew 24 to pray that our flight not be in the winter on Shab- or on Shabbat? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Um, number four, do you have an aruv in your family? Yes. So, like, in my family, for instance, like, we, we don't follow signs around our neighborhood or anything and say we can't cross this. We're here, obviously, and we live off of Fortner, so we drove, you know, 15 minutes or so to get here. But, yeah, we do. We have kind of an aruv in our family, like a boundary in our family. So, in other words, on Shabbat, I'm not going to drive to Washington, D.C. and do this lengthy trip of, like, driving all night and, and exhausting myself on Shabbat, you know, I might, I might have like a blowout on, the, on the, the road or I might get in a car accident or something like this. I'm not going to make a long, lengthy, unnecessary trip on Shabbat. So I'm going to drive to a place of congreg- congregating and worshiping, but I'm not going to do something that's going to take me way out of the way and exhaust me, okay? So I, I'm not to the point where we're like looking at signs around and DMF is not going to go around and put signs around Houston <laughs> County that you guys can't leave this certain boundary, okay? That's just creepy and weird. But what I can encourage you to do, and not do, I should say, is to use the day to focus on the goodness of God and to worship with other believers and not do something that you know or not go to on, on a journey that's going to tire you or to cause you undue stress. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to go fight Atlanta traffic on Shabbat. All right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do the things that are really focused around him and rest on this day. All right? But yeah, I think it's good for you to have that understanding of your family. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 1 and now let's go to verse I think we're in verse 12 verse 13 after entering the city of Jerusalem, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying the names of the emissaries were Kepha or Peter Yaakov which is James Yohanan Andrew Philip Tomah Bartalmai Matityahu Yaakov Ben Halfai Shimon the Zealot who would have been assassinating people like Matthew along with some women, including Miriam, Yeshua's mother, and his brothers. During this period, when the group of believers numbered 120, Peter, Kepha, he stood up and he addressed his fellow believers. Brothers, he says, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, spoke in advance through David about Judas. And he said these words in in the Tanakh. They had to be fulfilled. Remember, he's talking about Judas, the betrayer. He was a guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of us and had been assigned a part in our work. With the money Yehuda received, Judas received for his evil deed, he bought a field, and there he fell to his death. His body swelled up and it burst open, and his insides spilled out. This became known to everyone in Yerushalayim. So they called it the field Hakal Dama, the field of blood. Now, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his estate become desolate. Let there be no one to live in it. And let someone else take his place as supervisor. Let's pause here. 
This upper room, they're in. This is a recreation of it that everyone knows is not the real upper room. How many of you have been here? Several of you, good, okay. Um, you could easily fit 120 people in here, but this is, this is very extravagant, very extravagant. And here's um, Pilgrims of Jerusalem reporting a visit, visiting a structure on Mount Zion commemorating the Last Supper since the fourth century AD. Some scholars would have it that this was the cynical, in fact, a synagogue from the, an earlier time. The anonymous pilgrim from Bordeaux, France, reported seeing such a synagogue in 333 AD. A Christian synagogue is mentioned in the apocryphal 4th century Anaphora Palati, or the report of Pilate. The building has experienced numerous cycles of destruction and reconstruction, culminating in the Gothic structure which it stands today, which is in this picture right here. So this is not the room they were in, okay? Everybody agrees that, but it's, it's nice to theorize what it may have looked like. But how many people do we have here? 120 people. We need a pretty, pretty big room. There's maybe, how many people would you say here right now? 60, 70-ish? We have fit 120 people in this room before for Passover, and it was, pretty, it was pretty full. This is a big room though, right? Do you think there's rooms like this in ancient Jerusalem? Up on a second story? No. No, you gotta be very, very wealthy if that's the case. Let's, let's go back to our city here. Down here is the lower city, and up here is the upper city. This is Caiaphas, the high priest. His house is right there. If anybody's gonna have a big old house, it's gonna be Caiaphas. And his house is not even like half the size of this room right here. So we've got a problem. How do we fit 120 people into this room? And then how do we put, how do we put it up here? Here's the, they, they say, this is the traditional upper room is up here in the upper. But I tend to think that these people are probably in the lower city. They're probably somewhere in the lower city. Could they fit 120 people in this upper room, perhaps? Maybe they're spilling out into the sidewalk or spilling out to the stairways or downstairs, but they're cramped in there, right? I think that they're somewhere here in the lower city and not up in the three doors down from the high priest who just executed their, their rabbi and is hunting them down now as well. Here's what 120 people looks like. I was like, what does 120 people look like? So I Googled it and it came up with this picture. <laughs> but I was like, I want you guys to see this. So this is a big group of people. But think about this. These 120 people are the parents, the spiritual godfathers, you could say, of the faith that we're now living 2,000 years later. Our faith dwindled down to that many people right there. And now there's over 2 billion people who profess faith in Yeshua of Nazareth as being their Lord and Savior. It's amazing, right? The steadfastness of 120 people, the ruach, the spirit moving through these people it, it's like, remember when, um, when Gamliel says, be careful because if you try to squash this movement, you might find yourself fighting against God. Remember that? 120 people. And I, these people obviously are not the same people. We lost that photo a long time ago. But yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. But I want you to at least detach yourself from the notion that from this point forward in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, everything's about to happen in an upper room. I want you to detach from that, that notion. How many of you were taught that the events of Acts chapter 2 and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit happened in the upper room? I was. Yeah. I want you to detach yourself from that notion because there is very little evidence that that actually is what happened. Why is it translated? It's not translated that way. Okay. Yeah, it actually doesn't even read that way. But for some reason, because we think they're all in this upper room, they stayed there and that's where the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And somehow 3,000 people are going to witness that in an upper room. We'll talk about um, next week when we get to Acts chapter 2. But let's continue. 
We're in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 15. During this period, when the group of believers numbered about 120, oh, we already read that. So let's skip to um, uh, verse 21. Therefore, one of the men who have been with us continuously throughout the time of the Lord Yeshua traveled around among us from the time Yochanan was immersing people until the day Yeshua was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So how many disciples are they down to? Eleven. We lost Judas, right? So they're very um, focused on replacing Judas. Why? Why is that the case? And why only twelve? Why do they need to replace Judas? And why do they stop with twelve? Why don't they, hey, let's just go ahead and point, appoint like 500 more disciples right here and right now. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, they have to replace him because each of them had specific duties mm -hmm. in serving the body. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. The key is the number 12. What's this? Alina, see your hand back there. What's the key with number 12? Yes. Yeah, because you got to remember, the disciples are thinking we are representatives to the 12 tribes of Israel. Because the gospel in their minds, and it should be partly in our mind as well, is the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Right? That Messiah had to come, die, suffer, atone for all the sins of Israel and the world. And then through that, all the nations will put their trust in him. And then through that, all the nations will be regathered back to the land. All the, all the, all the tribes will be regathered and put back in their land. So they're thinking that. And I think that they're correct in that. That there's one of us per tribe of Israel. All right? That's a very important concept. So how are they going to select a new disciple? Well, like we said, they say, hey, there's guys who are among us who have been with us from the very beginning, from the time of the immersion of Yochanan until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness to his resurrection. So how many of these men do we have? Well, they nominated two men. What are their names? Yosef Barsaba. Surnamed Justice. See, this is a good example of a religious Jew having two names. Okay, he has a Hebrew name and then he has a Greek name. And this is why Paul did not change his name from Saul to Paul. Everybody's saying, well, there's a verse in the Bible. There's no verse in the Bible that says that Paul ever changed his name from Saul to Paul at his conversion. It's just not in the Bible whatsoever. I'll give you $100 if you find it. But <laughs> what happened is Paul has two names. He has his Hebrew name, Shaul, and his Greek name, Paulos. And he uses those almost interchangeably depending on who he's talking to. That's very common practice. So then we've got a second candidate, Matityahu, or Matthias is more Greek version of it. So, okay, so let's back up. Did um, they set any sort of standard for these men, who, for the one that's about to join them and make 12 again? Yes. What are the requirements that they just set? Essentially, yeah, but what, what were the requirements they put on him, Brian? Yes, they had to be with him from the beginning, right? And to witness all of that, right? right 30, uh, not 30, three plus years, they were walking around with Yeshua. This person had to have been there from day one, okay? So they prayed. They said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the work in the office of emissary that Judas abandoned to go where he belongs. Then they drew lots. Wait, what? They drew lots? Why didn't someone just get a voice from God and like, hey, I, the Lord's telling me he's the one. You're saying they drew lots? That's weird. 
And that's how they decided this? Yeah, it says they drew lots to decide between the two. And the Greek there is kleros. They drew kleros. It's where we get the word uh, cleric from, which is where we get the word clergy from. What is a clergy? Like someone who's like a pastor or a rabbi or something like that. So they drew lots to decide between the two, and the lot fell to Matityahu. So he was added to the 11 emissaries. So what is this, this lot thing? Jeremy brought up a really good question. What is this? And are they even kosher to draw lots? Is this, is this like divination? Are they doing something that's not kosher in the Torah? Yes, Suzanne. It was used in the Torah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yep. The Urim and the Thumim. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But is this, yeah, is this like the ancient sortition used by the ancient Athenians when they would select successors to political office? Is it just pure chance, pure luck they, they left it up to? But this, what we see here in Acts 1 is not connected to luck or blind chance whatsoever. How do we know that? Well, because they set some standards. Okay, they have to be with us from day one, right? Apparently they specify the gender. They have to be a man. And then we're going to pray. Thirdly, many people select leaders without even praying. We're going to pray and then we're going to draw lots. We're, we're making this and we're all agreeing that when we draw this lots, this is God's decision right here. So in other words, what they're saying, we don't know the answer to this question. We have two highly possible, highly qualified individuals and we need divine intervention. We're not even going to trust ourselves to come up with a word. We're going to draw lots. Very biblical thing to do. And I'm going to read this article here, almost, almost closing out before we do our review. This is an article called The Casting of Lots in Ancient Israel. Very common practice. Both Luke and Acts begin with a casting or taking of lots. In Luke 1.9, the priest Zacharias, if you remember, is selected by lot to burn incense at the veil of the temple where the angel Gabriel appears to him. His selection by lot had been done according to the custom of the priests. So wait, you're saying the priests would draw lots? Yeah, absolutely. The priests, that's pretty much all they did to decide who was going to offer what that day in the, in the temple um, worship system. That is in the normal way for the priest to be assigned to a specific duty in the temple. Likewise, the early disciple Matthias was chosen by lot to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle of Yeshua. And the apostles, it says, we just read, appointed two. Um, and then they drew lots, and then he was numbered with the, with the other 11 apostles. So the practice described in the book of Acts of casting or giving or taking lots as a means of, of selecting new apostles to replace Judas Iscariot seems puzzling to us modern people, right? Because we tend to view casting lots as a matter of mere random chance, almost like gambling or something. In the ancient world, though, casting lots was a uni universally viewed as a form of divination by which the will of God was revealed. The book of Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast into the lap but the decision is from the Lord. That is to say, the result of casting lots is controlled or manipulated by God so that his will is manifest through the lot taking. The exact process by which the lots were cast in ancient Israel is not always clear, though there were probably several different methods. One way was by using different colored marked stones, producing binary outcomes, yes or no, good or bad, selected or rejected, like on Yom Kippur, or pieces of broken pottery called ostraca would have names or marks written on them as well, thereby offering a wider array of possible outcomes. Incidentally, our verb to ostracize comes from the practice 
attested for example in classic Athens of using these pottery, these ostraca um, to determine who would be expelled from the city. The conquered lands of Canaan were divided among the Israelites by lot. So who, who, which tribe went where was decided by lot. The sin of Jonah was determined to be uh, the source of the storm threatening the ship. So they decided, who, who is at blame here? So they cast lots. You remember that story in, in the book of Jonah? And they were like, oh, it's Jonah. Throw him overboard. Casting lots was intimately connected with Israelite temple practice and with assigning temple duties. The high priest was selected by lots at the time of David. The selection of Matthias uh, in Acts 1 as an apostle by casting lots is undoubtedly based on this ancient temple practice, perhaps implying that Matthias's high priestly status as well. Other specific duties to be performed by priestly families were also assigned by Lot, which forms a background for the selection of Zacharias to tend the incense in the altar in Luke 1, uh, verse 9. The Urim, as Suzanne was pointing out, the Urim and the Thummim are considered by many scholars to have been a type of like lot-taking. The high priest was to carry the Urim and the Thummim in a pouch or a pocket on his breastplate to manifest the judgment or decisions of the Lord. The word mishpat here is the same word used in Proverbs 16.33. Remember the decision, the mishpat is the Lord's. The result of lot casting mentioned above. The lot taking for the selection of Mattathias in Acts 1 as an apostle may thus be related to the urim and the thumim practice in some way. The word urim means lights in Hebrew, leading some scholars to believe that the urim and the thumim were some type of reflective or semi-transparent crystal, gem, or rock. Thus, in the ancient Israelite context, the casting of lots for the selection of a new apostle should be understood against two different backgrounds. The selection of priesthood-like leaders by lots for service in, in the Israelite temple and obtaining God's will through the use of the Urim and the Thummim. Ancient Jews... Oh, that's actually wrong. Let's stop right there. But yeah, so this is not just like a blind chance, you know, like divination, like something that the pagans would do. You know, the pagans used to cut open animals and take their organs and look at their organs and be like, okay, God is trying to tell us this. No, this is a very, very methodical, we're going to create qualifications, we're going to find the people who meet them, we're going to pray, and then we're going to cast lots, okay? In old times, we used to do called uh, drawing straws, remember that? Where you, would, you, you pull the shorter straw, then you got to go out and fight the bad guy in the street or something, right? It's a little bit different. But I want to um, close out with some review and some questions here. Who did the 12th position of disciple fall to? Matthias, yeah, good. Or Matityahu, as we'd say in Hebrew. What did the 12 stop at? Uh, why did the 12 stop at 12 and not continue to appoint dozens of apostles? 12 tribes. Corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel, yeah. What does the ascension of Yeshua connected to in the prophetic? What, is that, what was that supposed to remind us of? Daniel chapter 7 and the ascension and enthronement of the Son of Man. And then why is, what is the Sabbath day's walk, I should say? What is the Sabbath day's walk? A typo. 2,000 cubits. Out, cubits outside of a city wall. Okay, that in biblical times, that's what that was, and the apostles understood it. They seem to have respected it, um, be very familiar with it. And the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, knew it very well. All right, with that, we'd like to do a little time of Q and A. If anybody has any questions or comments, they'd like to add. Uh, got a comment on how uh, God proved that drawing lots was uh, Jesus divine um, in Joshua. God stole, uh, stole things from the city to the copper, the gold and the silver. Yeah. Uh, God 
the curse of losing the, the next battle. Yeah. And he said that somebody sinned against me and he had them all draw a lot from the 12th tribe and just kept narrowing it down yeah. until it pointed to the guy and he gave him the opportunity to confess. Yeah. And yeah. he said, yes, I took it. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be a very biblical thing to do. Just interesting. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? That's a good one. Yeah, I see. Is that Mike in the back? That's it. The limits of my eyesight. <laughs> the number 120, during the Greek occupation, they sent out 120 satraps throughout the, 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 the region to represent Greek and obviously Alexander. So the 120 in the upper room, or I should forgive me, the 120 were like Governor General sent out to represent Yeshua mm. to expand the kingdom. Yeah, that's that's interesting, yeah. And the number twelve also represents government, God's government. Mm, yeah. And then one of the other qualifications for you know, who shall we choose had to witness the resurrection as well. Yeah, yeah, very good points, thank you. So for those who couldn't hear, what Mike was saying was basically hundred and twenty might might be connected to this idea of like um, Greek government where uh, they would send out hundred and twenty delegates, right? Am I getting that right? Um, Roman government to, to be the ambassador for like a, like a, a dignitary or a, a governor. Um, and then 12 is a number of God's government as well. So these guys are governing the way, the sect known as the way. They're gonna be the people who are gonna help steer this ship and make, make authoritative halakhic or, or doctrinal decisions within the way. But yeah, good points, thank you. Also 120 uh, is all over the Bible. It's, it's three times 40. Um, like Moses ascends the, the Mount Sinai for, for three times for 40 days. Um, Noah makes three attempts to find land after 40 days of rain. Um, the, the, Yeshua was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness three times. It's all over the Bible, but it's, it's like an ultimate form of uh, completion or, or testing. So, yeah, Suzanne. Well, another thought that came to me was, like you said earlier, they couldn't say, well, it's all your fault, Gabe, because you're the one that said we needed to put this person yeah. This way they could say clearly it wasn't it was anybody, God's decision. it was God. Yeah, so she's saying that basically by doing this this way, they're saying this is God's decision, it's not ours. So I couldn't be like, Howard, you know, it's your idea to put Matthias in. He's a, he's a hot mess, man. Why did you pick him? We know we couldn't do that. We'd have to say, you know, this was God's decision. And it was God's will. So it is what it is. All right. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, Jackie. Mm. And it also talks in Revelation about the apostles and the Yeah. And where was that you just read from? Matthew 19. Matthew 19. So this is corresponding with the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem and the 12, 12 thrones, and they're judging. Yeah. So they're seeing themselves as. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. They say. Um, you know, the disciples come to him and say, which one of us will be sitting at your right and at your left? So they have this understanding, like, we're going to be sitting at your right and left, judging the, the tribes, judging the nations. Which is interesting, when he does get coronated as king at his crucifixion, who is at his right and who is at his left? To you least expect, right? These thieves, these insurrectionists. 
thought it was fascinating. Now, in the kingdom, that might be different. But at his coronation, it was people that you would least expect. All right. Anybody else have a question or comment? 